From the heart of our nation's capital, here's Family Research Council President Tony Perkins. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to Washington Watch. Coming up... Republicans have tried repeatedly to build on the CARES Act and get more help out the door to American families. Democrats have blocked us at every turn. That was Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell earlier today. By a 5247, Senate Democrats blocked the latest relief bill from moving forward. Missouri Senator Roy Blunt is here with more on the effort to get relief to the American people. Also, 100 rabbis have sent a letter to Amazon chief Jeffrey Bezos saying Amazon's reliance on the Southern Poverty Law Center should be terminated because the SPLC is, quote, uniquely detrimental and even dangerous to the Jewish community, end quote. Rabbi Yakva Minkin joins me later here on Washington Watch. And 19 states continue to restrict, restrict churches from meeting. Nine states, all under Democratic governors, are prohibiting worship services altogether or placing unequal restrictions upon those churches. California is one of the most egregious, as pastors in their congregations are now being threatened with arrest. Pastor Cheon from Harvest Rock Church in Pasadena provides details later here on Washington Watch. And do you remember the drawn-out 2000 presidential election? You remember that, the, the hanging chads? It took over a month, and the outcome was finally decided by the Supreme Court. Well, John Fund says the possibility of litigation in the 2020 election may make the, 20, the, the 2000 fight in Florida look like a high school student council election by comparison. He joins us later to explain. The website, TonyPerkins.com. If you're on Twitter or Parler, it is uh, at T Perkins. And uh, let me remind you, if you've not yet taken the challenge, how many of you have taken the challenge? The challenge to pray, vote, and stand. Pray for our nation. Vote your biblical values and stand for truth. Look, when we see what's happening in the streets of America, it's time to stand. And elections, my friends, they have consequences. Take the challenge. Go to TonyPerkins.com. Share it with your friends. Our goal, one million. One million of you who will take the pledge to pray, to vote, and to stand. Influence your friends, your family, your neighbors. And by the way, coming up September the 22nd through the 25th, Values Voter Summit. A little different this year. It is virtual. So no matter where you live, you can join us and be a part. It's interactive. You'll have a chance to participate with poll questions. Uh, you'll be able to, it'll be like almost as good as being there, but you don't have to dress up and you can feel free to eat popcorn, whatever. Uh, but it'll be every night, September the 22nd through the 25th, 8 p.m. Eastern to 9.30 p.m. We've got a great guest, you know, same as last time. We'll, we'll most likely hear from the president. Uh, we'll have uh, Dr. Ben Carson, um, you, you name it. They'll be there. You need to be there as well. Go to TonyPerkins.com. Register to be a part of it. As I mentioned earlier today, there was another attempt at getting much-needed relief to the American families, small businesses. There was an effort to expand the coronavirus testing and provide funds to help open schools, to get kids back in school. However, once again, the measure was blocked by a unified Democratic Party in the Senate. Now, you know, I've got a question. Is COVID-19 being used as a political tool? I mean, think about it. Governors in six states, all Democrats, using it to keep churches closed. It is being used to limit some businesses, mostly small businesses. It's killing our economy. You would think there would be an urgency to help move the nation forward. Then why? Why? Did Senate Democrats once again block a relief package? Well, join me now to talk about what was in that package and why it was blocked is uh, Senator Roy Blunt of Missouri. Senator, welcome back to the program. Hi, Tony. Great to be with you again. Thanks for letting me talk to you for a while today. Well, you, uh, you were actually called out by the, uh, the majority leader for your efforts in trying to get this bill forward. In fact, I want to play that short clip uh, earlier today, the Senate majority leader on the floor. Play clip number two, Bobby. Thanks to Chairman Alexander and Senator Blunt. We're going to vote on an incredibly robust package for education and health care to get kids back in school safely and then defeat this virus through science. 
We'll be voting on $105 billion for education, more than House Democrats put in their bill, billions for testing and tracing, and even more support for vaccines. You were a key part of putting together this package that had uh, all but one Republican supporting it. What happened? Well, we did have 52 Republicans uh, vote for this package, and I think it's more and more clear uh, that Democrats in the Senate particularly, and particularly the leader, have decided, uh, the, the majority, the minority leader has decided that chaos is his friend, that the more uh, we can put obstacles in the way of moving forward, I think he thinks that enhances uh, the chance that Democrats may take over the Senate. I think people are going to see through that. I think the vote today was important. It was a vote to really, in a targeted way, get kids back to school, people back to work, uh, and to move forward on the health care things that allow us to win the fight against the virus. As the leader pointed out in his comments uh, in the HEROES Act, uh, you know, Democrats had $100 billion uh, for schools. Uh, we didn't think that was quite enough. And in our bill, we put $105 billion. At that moment, they decide, well, we really probably needed, need $500 billion. $100 billion, good enough for the HEROES Act. But once we agreed with them on something, they come up with a, uh, a bigger number. Uh, we have made great headway in coming up with tests that are going to be easier to take and quicker response that will serve the real purpose of tests. Warp speed, warp moving forward on kind of a dual track uh, with a vaccine that will go through every standard of uh, verification a vaccine has ever gone through. But because of the way we're doing it, it could be earlier. We need a little money to finish that and really to have money to have a, a plan to distribute that vaccine. I'll be holding a hearing on that topic next week. Uh, but I'm disappointed that uh, Democrats in the Senate and Democrats in the House uh, have clearly decided that they don't want to have a solution and don't want to create uh, a place to negotiate this bill. I mean, this would have additionally uh, provided um, additional unemployment or enhanced unemployment benefits because the, the, a lot of the monies are running out, so this is going to help the families. There was some money in here for the small businesses that are being hurt, as you mentioned, the coronavirus testing and the schools. Uh, but one of the issues that was uh, a sticking point for the, the Democrats, uh, for the minority leader and Nancy Pelosi, was that this did not include bailouts for state and local governments that um, you know haven't been taking care of business. Well, their their bill in the uh, in the House can, included uh, big bailouts for local government and included uh, a big tax cut for rich people on in New York and and California and other places by reversing what we did a couple of years ago on the state and local tax exemption that particularly benefits high tax states where they get more federal subsidy in effect for their tax structure. There's so much in their bill that has nothing to do with COVID-19. And as I said a minute ago, when we do agree with them on a COVID-19 issue, they change their mind. About a, bill, a trillion dollars of their bill dealt with COVID-19 uh, with the exception of the state and local government uh, bailout. Um, and then another trillion dollars their bill dealt with things that had nothing to do with COVID-19. It was a it was really a campaign platform, that $3 trillion bill of everything you might expect to happen if Democrats got in control of the Congress uh, and the country. Uh, but we could quickly agree on most of the elements that get people back to school, back to work, and back to better health uh, if uh, our colleagues on the other side wanted to do that, Tony. Well, I mean, that's this This really went to the heart of the matter. What are the most essential things that need to be taken care of? I mean, we could talk about their bailouts for mismanaged government, governments with high taxes and governments that, by the way, continue to keep businesses closed so they don't have the tax revenue, so they want the federal government to pick up the bill. We could talk about that. But this targets what was proposed today targets the, the heart of the matter that will keep families, you know, moving forward, or at least not going underwater, Small businesses keep them at least not having to shutter their doors permanently. So why? Why are the Democrats 
blocking this? Yeah, I just think, frankly, they've made a political calculation that it's to their advantage in the presidential election and the House elections and the Senate elections uh, to continue to let this problem move forward without grabbing hold of a solution. It's clear that a lot of the solutions are in this bill. It's also clear that Republicans are willing to talk about more than this bill that 52 of 53 Republicans agreed on. Uh, Which and, well, uh, let, me, let me just add a little commentary to that. That is quite significant because that's, you've come a long way because there was a lot of division within the Republican ranks over another relief bill. Some saying we didn't need it. Some say it was too much. So the fact that you got to this point, and I know you're part of the leadership and helped get it to this point, that's saying quite a bit that you had all but one Republican on board. Well, it is, and Leader McConnell and uh, our whip, John Thune, did a great job. Others bailed in, uh, bailed into that fight to try to be sure that we could find uh, something we could agree on. And so what this really was was a targeted effort that every Republican in the Senate said, uh, we want to get people back to work. We want to have a, a assistance for unemployment that makes a difference for families. Uh, we want to get people back to child care they can afford so they can get back to work. We want to get kids back to school. Uh, and our bill even had of the money for back to school, uh, everybody got a third of the money available for back to school. But uh, in elementary, elementary and secondary school, you only got the other two-thirds if you were back to school uh, in person. And every Republican voted for a bill that would have had that incentive to get kids back in school and not lose uh, another year of what happens with that distance learning that uh, nobody argues is as good as learning in person in school. But there was also funds in there for, if I'm not mistaken, for private schools and homeschool students as there well. There were, absolutely. That is absolutely right. And uh, uh, the, the uh, we had language in there that would... Uh, have some tax benefits for private school families. We had language in that bill uh, that assured that every private school kid would get uh, a fair share of money that went to a state. We, it's about 10% of, of, ki of kids in America now in elementary and secondary go to private schools, and 10% of that money was set aside to be, alloc uh, to be allocated to private schools. Uh, we had a provision in the bill that in the states that have a, a scholarship fund structured in a way that people that uh, can benefit from that scholarship fund in sending kids to private school, and 18 states already have those, the governor of those states mm -hmm. could direct the money right to those scholarship funds to benefit that kind of private school education. Well, Senator uh, Roy Blunt, I think you're absolutely right. I think this is, um, this is a political tool that the Democrats don't want to let go of. It's a narrative they want to continue to pound, but I, I, I hope the American people see it. I think they will see it, that they are, in fact, playing politics with the very future of our country and the lives of uh, millions of Americans. Well, I think that's right, and uh, there's a way to solve this problem, and I think people should be looking carefully at who's trying to solve it and who's trying to benefit from the problem. Yep, I think you're absolutely right. Senator Roy Blunt, as always, thanks for joining us. Hey, great. Great to be with you, Tony. All right. Uh, folks, when we come back, 100 rabbis have signed a letter to the head of Amazon saying SPLC is a threat to them. We talk about it next. Don't go away. Are you concerned with the state of our nation? And when looking at what's going on in our culture, do you wonder, what can I do? For the past 15 years, FRC Action has hosted Values Voter Summit, an event for people like you who want to shape the culture so that all human life is valued, families flourish, and religious liberty thrives. And this Values Voter Summit is going viral. So everyone can tune in and be encouraged to pray, to vote, and to stand in these significant times. Past speakers included President Donald Trump, Vice President Mike Pence, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, Dr. Ben Carson, and Dana Lash. Register today for your free digital pass and join us virtually from September the 22nd to the 25th from 8 to 9.30 p.m. Eastern. Visit ValuesVoterSummit.org for more information. That's ValuesVoterSummit.org. Don't miss out. Remember, pray, vote, stand. 
Since the 1973 Roe v. Wade Supreme Court decision, Congress and many states have taken various actions to stop taxpayer dollars from funding abortions or the abortion industry. As early as 1976, Congressman Henry Hyde led the effort to ban federal funding for abortions. The Federal Hyde Amendment, named after him, established the principle that abortion is not health care and therefore taxpayers should not be forced to fund abortions. Despite these efforts, the abortion industry still receives millions of dollars each year in taxpayer money. In 2019, Planned Parenthood, America's largest abortion provider, received $616.8 million in government funds. Family Research Council's newly updated pro-life map tracks how your state has taken action to stop taxpayer funding of abortions. Go to frc.org slash pro-life maps to see where your state stands in the fight for life. That's frc.org slash pro-life maps. Hey, Matt. Hey, Hannah. What's going on? Why so gloomy? Well, I'm a little disappointed. I had a lot planned to do during the stay-at-home time, and I just didn't do it. Oh, yeah? What did you have planned that you didn't get to do? Well, I was actually hoping I would finally be able to get time to do a regular Bible reading routine, and I started a couple of times. I just didn't stick with it. Don't be too down on yourself. Starting a new routine can be hard, but one way to help is to join in with others and to have a good game plan. I think I have a good solution for you. Oh, yeah? Tony Perkins and FRC are doing a two-year study in the Word. They have it all mapped out. When did they start? I I would be so far behind. Oh, that's not a problem. You can literally jump in any time. There's a daily reading just a couple of chapters a day with questions to help you think about what you're reading. Nice. Where can I find this? Go to frc.org slash Bible and you can get started. Where's that again? frc.org slash Bible. Got it. Checking it out now. I'm Tony Perkins, and this is Washington Watch. Take the challenge. Take the challenge to pray, vote, stand. Go to Tony Perkins. Take the challenge. 100 Orthodox Jewish rabbis are calling on Amazon CEO Jeff Bezos to stop using the Southern Poverty Law Center to serve as the company's moral compass when it comes to Amazon's Charitable Smile program. That's the program that allows Amazon customers to designate a, a portion of their purchase to, you know, purchase price, their profits that go to Amazon, to a charity of their choice. Well, SPLC obviously uses their uh, hate group labels to disqualify certain uh, companies. Now, this was an issue a couple of weeks ago before Congress, when Bezos appeared before Congress and several Republican Members brought this issue up in the committee hearing. Bezos kind of had a deer in headlights look, kind of not sure how to respond. He said he would follow up. Well, I've not heard him following up, but the Republicans, several Republicans have written a letter uh, to him following up, citing the problems with uh, SPLC. I mean, we've we've talked about it here in the program, and they have scandal after scandal. Uh, they've uh, been the home of uh, bigotry, racism, uh, s- sexual discrimination, and, and and they're being held up as the moral compass for many of these uh, high-tech businesses. Well, last week, as I mentioned, 100 Orthodox Jewish rabbis have joined in the call uh, because there is a unique threat to them. Joining me now to talk about this is the Managing Director of the Coalition for Jewish Values, Rabbi Yaakov Mintkin. Rabbi Mintkin, welcome to Washington Watch. Thank you so much for having me. Let me ask you, why are these rabbis speaking up about the Southern Poverty Law Center? Well, it it really is very straightforward. You sort of laid it out. But besides the fact that it's uh, using a definition of hate that seems to be slanted against conservative groups overall, uh, there is a particular and very apparent bias to mask uh, anti-Semitism coming from certain left-wing groups, especially those groups uh, affiliated with radical Islam, and at the same time to demonize those who are allied with the Jewish community in the fight against hatred. Yeah, you actually point out in the letter uh, to uh, Mr. Bezos that... Uh, 
there's no case of the Southern Poverty Law Center actually identifying a group aligned with uh, radical Islam as a as a hate group. But yet anyone who speaks out against radical Islam is or many are labeled and falsely labeled because they've had to pay law. They've had to pay damages, uh, get some settlements in court. Um, So you've pointed that out, that there seems to be a double standard. Uh, I mean, absolutely. It's like a a stunning blind spot. Uh, They're actually asked in their frequently asked questions. The SPLC tries to address the question, why is there no specific category called anti-Semitism? And they point out that, you know, very sadly, uh, anti-Semitic hatred is characteristic of a whole diverse series of hate groups. But the ones they point to, neo-Nazis, racist skinheads, Christian identity adherents, Klan groups, white nationalist groups, etc., and even black separatist groups, separatist groups are all listed by them. Radical Islam is responsible for the murder of more Jews in the last 50 years than all those other groups combined. But yet they're silent on those groups. In fact, it, uh, I think, again, in the letter, and I don't have it in front of me, but you point out that in some cases they have uh, uh, worked with groups allied with some of these uh, radical Islamist groups. Absolutely. In identifying hate, they're now partnering with the Council on American-Islamic Relations. Uh, leaders in the counter, uh, on that council have been identified with support for terrorism and support for terror organizations. In fact, CARE itself, overall, was an unindicted co-conspirator in the, uh, year, you know, in the dec- first decade of the 2000s, when there was a trial against the Holy Land Foundation, which proved that that organization, the Holy Land Foundation, had been providing material support to the Hamas terror organization, a a genocidal organization with anti-Semitism and anti-Semitic genocide written into its charter. And CARE, again, was an unindicted co-conspirator in that. And, And these are the people SPLC considers partners in fighting hatred. So, Rabbi Minkin, how, how is it that the SPLC has become the moral compass for so many of these big companies, especially in the tech world? I mean, how is that when it, it's so blatant, the left-leaning, leftist views of uh, the Southern Poverty Law Center? I mean, you just look at who they go after. They don't go after anybody on the left. They go after the right. They're kind of the attack dog of the right. So why is it these businesses are, are aligned with SPLC. Well, you know, at first I can say I'm a rabbi. I just tell you what I see in front of me, and I don't claim to be an expert in in the history of how that precise situation developed and why it is. But I think if we look back, uh, it's pretty straightforward that the SPLC earlier in its history uh, was very much uh, an organization devoted to doing the extremely good and necessary work of rooting out KKK groups and other hate groups, white supremacists, neo-Nazis, etc. And they've exploited the goodwill of the public, developed an incredibly large endowment, maintained a very large public profile, while they've essentially gone off mission. Uh, they've now decided that an idea promoting a certain ideology is more important to them than fighting hate. And uh, we're we're out almost out of time, but one of the main points you make is that they are a threat to you. They they are endangering the Jewish community by what they do. Absolutely, they stop funding for our allies while allowing funding to go to organizations like Students for Justice in Palestine that glorify terror against the Jewish community. It's profoundly dangerous to us. Uh, Rabbi Minkin, when you hear back from Mr. Bezos, will you let me know? Because I'd love to have you come back on and tell me what he said. I'd be delighted, and I look forward to his response. Thank you. All right, and I look forward to hearing it. So, Rabbi, thank you so much for joining us today. All right, folks, when we come back, as I mentioned, I, I think the coronavirus is is political. It's being used by certain Democratic governors to basically shut down the churches. Why? I think there's a political motivation behind it. I'll get into that later. But coming up next, a pastor in California threatened with jail if he keeps meeting.
Oh, man. What's wrong? I just missed Washington Watch with Tony Perkins, and our congressman was going to be on the show today. Oh, that's not a big deal. What do you mean? Well, you can always catch the replay of the day show. How's that? With the Stand Firm app. Yeah? Yep, you can catch that day's program and so much more. You can contact your elected officials on campaigns and policies that are important to you with the Take Action tab. You can listen to Washington Watch with Tony Perkins live and play previous episodes while conveniently going about your day. You can access the Washington Update, informative blogs, tweets, and critical campaigns on the main feed so you can stay up to date on local and national news. Wow, I definitely use that. How do you find the app? Just visit frc.org slash app and download or search Stand Firm in the App Store. Okay, that's Stand Firm. Yep, Stand Firm. How do you know all this? Because I'm a sage con, but that's another story. Huh? As churches consider gathering again, they should develop plans to reopen and operate according to the guidance of the CDC, along with state and local guidance that does not violate the First Amendment and other religious freedom protections. Family Research Council has a helpful resource with best practices and tips for churches and places of worship to consider when crafting their reopening plans. Romans 13 instructs Christians to be subject to the governing authorities. The civil authorities have a difficult task ahead, and we should seek to be a part of the solution through cooperation and service to our communities. Some states and authorities like Nevada and California are treating religious entities more restrictively than non-religious entities. But as long as restrictions are temporary, applied equally to religious and non-religious gatherings alike, and there is a good reason for putting them in place, government restrictions are not likely to violate religious freedom protections. To learn more and to view this resource, visit frc.org slash church guidelines. Welcome back to Washington Watch. I'm your host, Tony Perkins. So glad to have you with us. I hope you have taken the challenge. Pray, vote, stand. If not, go to TonyPerkins.com and take the challenge to pray for our nation, to vote your biblical values, and to stand for biblical truth. Pray, vote, stand. All right, speaking of that, 19 states still have restrictions in place on churches' meetings. Six, all with uh, Democratic governors. That's odd. They're actually prohibiting worship services altogether or have unequal treatment of churches, meaning treating churches worse than any other indoor event. Well, at the top of the list, yes, you guessed it, California. Following threat of arrest and closure, Harvest Church, Harvest Rock Church and Harvest International Ministry has appealed its case to the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals. Now, you're probably familiar with this. Gavin Newsom, the governor there. His orders prohibit all worship, including home Bible studies and fellowship with anyone who does not live in your home. So small groups can't meet. But as the lawsuit against the state points out, uh, Governor Newsom continues to encourage gatherings of protesters throughout California. Now, a prosecutor warned the pastor of Harvest Rock that he, church staff, and listen to this, attendees could face up to one year in jail if they continue to defy government COVID-19 orders by holding and attending in-person worship services. Joining me now to uh, to talk about this is Pastor Che On. He uh, is actually, while the church is in Pasadena, California, he's traveling, speaking in churches in battleground states, warning them of what is happening in our nation. Uh, Pastor Che, welcome to Washington Watch. Well, thank you, Tony. And first of all, let me just thank you for the tremendous job you're doing for our nation and your love for the family, the nuclear family. And uh, I follow you all the time. I read your uh, newsletter that you send to me every day. And so thank you for what you're doing. Well, I appreciate that, Pastor. I, I, I want to thank you for standing up in a very difficult situation where you're facing uh, jail time. In fact, we were just talking before the program that you were just waiting last week because there had been rumors that they were coming to arrest you. Yeah, we have someone in City Hall that uh, contacted me and said that they were going to arrest on Monday John MacArthur uh, at Grace uh, Community Church in Los Angeles and myself here in Pasadena, Harvest Rock Church. And so I was just waiting, but nothing happened. And, 
And I just feel like I don't think anything is going to happen before the election, because even if they arrest me, I will post bail. And then the courts are so backlogged because of COVID-19 and crimes have happened during this lockdown uh, that an attorney that works for the city, but also is part of our church, told me that uh, the first opportunity to see the judge most likely will be end of November, December, and it will be after the election. And I think just arresting me will have bad optics because, and here's what's really ironic and sad, our governor has been releasing criminals, prisoners, out of prisons here in California because of overcrowdedness and because of COVID-19. So they're letting rapists out, criminals out, and yet they want to arrest law-abiding citizens that want to just worship. And of course, a pastor is leading them. And so uh, I don't think they're going to do anything. But if they do, we're going to post bail and go through the due process because we believe we haven't broken the law. Uh, we believe based on the Constitution on our First Amendment rights that we're doing what uh, this great country has given us the freedom to do. But it's Governor Newsom that has violated the Constitution by uh, locking down the church and declaring us not essential. Pastor Che, did you ever think we would be at this point in America where churches are ordered to shut down and not meet Never, even no. in their homes? No, you know, uh, we have an international ministry called Harvest International Ministry, and we're in 70 nations. And for the last 25 years, I've been giving myself internationally. And uh, but in 2018, God called me to turn my heart back to the United States and really back to California, having no idea. And it wasn't because of the election coming up. That was just not on my radar. It was just an obedience to the Lord, not knowing that we would have this COVID-19 lockdown and that we would be experiencing what our brothers and sisters are experiencing in China. Of course, they're meeting illegally with the underground church, but they have a totalitarian, communist, one-party regime. Here, we are living in a democracy, and yet that same spirit of um, antichrist spirit, Marxism, whatever you want to call it, I do feel we don't rest against flesh and blood, but against principalities and against powers, that these demonic spirits are uh, really waging war uh, against our freedom here in the United States. Uh, very quickly, uh, Pastor Che, you are taking this message now to battleground states. You're traveling because you have a network of churches, and you're, you're sounding the alarm. I am. Uh, we have um, 162 churches just in California alone, and so I'm not the only pastor that's showing the Governor Newsom, uh, Harvest Rock Church, of course, but also Harvest International Ministry. And, it, and I began to realize, you know, we have churches in every battleground state, and so I'm asking our pastors if they would host a pastor's leaders meeting and then open up uh, their service for an open meeting, in-person meeting, so I could just come and just share how this election is the most critical, consequential, historic election. God bless you, Pastor Che, for, for taking that stand and doing that. We must alert the churches. This is an election that probably is the most significant in the, the history of our republic, and I appreciate you going out and, uh, and taking a stand for biblical truth. And thanks so much for joining us today as well. Well, thank you. Thank you for having me on your, your program. All right, uh, Pastor Che on. To find out more, go to the website, TonyPerkins.com. All right, when we come back, is there a reason they're targeting churches? And is election fraud a problem? We're going to be talking about those topics next. Don't go away. Masculinity in America has never been under attack the way it is today. We've reached the point where the term itself is considered toxic or offensive to many. The consistent message in our nation is that masculinity by nature is bad and is the root cause of many of the problems plaguing our society. From his experience as a military combat officer and ordained minister of the gospel, Lieutenant General William Boykin has seen and dealt with firsthand the breakdown of leadership in our nation by the lack of godly men living lives of biblical purpose. In his latest book, Man to Man, Rediscovering Masculinity in a Challenging World, he addresses the essential elements of manhood as a provider, an instructor, a defender, a battle buddy, and a chaplain, and explains how to personally develop these traits and pass them to the next generation. Get your copy today of Man to Man, wherever books are sold. 
The rapidly changing moral landscape of the 21st century presents a challenge for Christians committed to biblical sexual ethics. An uprising against morality has overturned centuries of norms concerning the family, marriage, and human sexuality. Secular culture is not the only challenger of Christian sexual ethics. Increasingly, theologically liberal churches and denominations are rejecting the church's historic teaching on marriage. As a result, Christians are facing increasing pressure to compromise the Bible's teaching on human sexuality. How should Christians who are committed to God's Word respond to these challenges? What does the Bible teach about sexuality? Family Research Council has a new publication that presents the biblical principles for human sexuality. It lays out a survey of culture, scripture, and church history that will help pastors and all Christians meet modern-day challenges to biblical sexuality with truth and love. To access this publication, visit frc.org slash humansexuality. The history of the United States is preserved in archives, books, and the collective memory of the American people. It is also preserved through monuments and memorials that visually represent the extraordinary history of our nation. To tell these stories and remind ourselves of the importance of these memorials, Family Research Council has a new blog series highlighting the most recognizable and popular monuments in our nation's capital. This series devotes particular attention to the historical and spiritual themes depicted in each monument, sharing some not-so-well-known facts about their history, design, and symbolic meaning that shed light on our nation's deep religious heritage. This series aims to inspire the next generation to see the importance of these monuments and to remind us of the virtues and lessons that they memorialize. To read FRC's monument series, visit frcblog.org slash monuments. Again, that's frcblog.org slash monuments. Tony Perkins, and this is Washington Watch. Website, TonyPerkins.com. I do hope you've taken that challenge. Pray, vote, stand. Look, um, I, I was talking about this as we were going out of the last segment about the the why. I even, I even brought this up a little bit with uh, Senator Blunt, the, the why behind the, the Democrats uh, kind of holding on to the coronavirus. Well, I mean, it's a convenient tool. In many of these states, as I mentioned, 19 states in total have uh, restrictions still in place, places uh, still in place on churches. Nine, uh, I'm sorry, six, six of those states still have onerous restrictions on those churches, limiting uh, when they can, in fact, prohibiting in California, all but I think three counties are prohibited from, from meeting. Why do I say it's political? Well, because when you think about coming up to one of these most significant elections, if you can keep people isolated, you can keep them from coming together. And, of course, you know, look, it's no secret that evangelicals, Christians that go to churches, that's where a lot of voter registration takes place. That's where a lot of voter education takes place with uh, nonpartisan voter guides. And quite frankly, that's where mobilization takes place. But it's it's helpful to those that do not want them to participate if they keep their churches closed. And it's also a convenient narrative to scare people and, you know, drive them to to either not vote because they're afraid to go to the polls. And that in part is what, you know, we're, I think we're going to see a, a lot of chaos in this uh, upcoming election. In fact, my next guest he, he writes that uh, the 2020 presidential election contest may end up being one of the most chaotic, unruly, and tumultuous elections in our history, with contentious litigation dragging on through and beyond Inauguration Day. Joining me now is uh, John Fund, columnist and author of uh, the book to be released later this month, Stealing Elections, How Voter Fraud Threatens Our Democracy. John, welcome to Washington Watch. Pleasure, Tony. Thank you. All right. As I was talking about, you know, how the coronavirus is being used to scare people, and then the, the, we're seeing a lot of these efforts to try to get universal mail-in balloting, uh, you make the point that we may be in for a very contentious election because we may see lots of lawsuits uh, after this election. 
Well, let's consider what the project fear the Democrats have mounted against voting at the polls has created. Um, there's three basic methods of how people can vote in America today. There's um, voting by mail, and that is going to grow exponentially because a lot of states run by Democrats have dramatically expanded that, to some extent mailing a ballot uh, to every person on the voter registration roll, which is a big mistake because those lists are way outdated and inaccurate. And the, of the P Americans who say they'll vote by mail, Biden leads 67 to 29. Then there's early voting. That's where you go to a government office building or you drop off your ballot in a government drop box before the election, but it's under the supervision of government officials. There, Trump leads among people who plan to vote early in a government setting, 50 to 48. And then on Election Day, a lot of people still plan to go to the polls, and Trump leads 58 to 37 among people who are going to vote on Election Day. So you can see where this is going. The Democrats are already saying, well, on election night, when we count the people who voted that day, Trump's going to have a lead. But we have to wait for all these delayed mail-in ballots to come in. And some states say, we'll count ballots if they come in a week later, even if there's no postmark saying they were postmarked before the election. So you can imagine the potential for lawsuits and argument over that. It could take weeks. In New York State, we had primaries in June. I live in the Upper East Side of Manhattan. Tony, the, the winner of my congressional district primary in the Democratic Party wasn't decided for six and a half weeks. Yeah, uh, th that takes us in almost to the new year. Um, if, if we and passed when the Electoral College is supposed to decide who becomes president. Exactly, um, which may be... Ex Maybe the plan. I, I, earlier today, I was actually reading the Washington Post today, talked about, uh, based on a nationwide survey of voters, of registered voters, six in ten plan to cast their ballots before Election Day, which is a significant departure from previous years. In fact, in 2016, four out of ten were cast early. So this is a, this is, there's going to be a lot of people voting early. And as you said, some uh, will just actually go to the polls and vote early. Others will request absentee ballots. And, of course, we have all these initiatives trying to force um, ballots to be sent to all the voters. But the system in these states, the, the systems are not prepared for this. And as you point out, it took six weeks in New York to be able to count the returns. So this is going to keep, allow these lawsuits to be filed. It's going to be very contentious. And it's going to potentially undermine the American people's trust in our system of elections, is it not? Yes, which is, and which is not very high. We have new polls out, Tony, that show that over one out of four Americans will not accept the election result if the candidate they support loses. Yeah. And that's very toxic for our democracy. And, you know, this mail-in voting— uh, you know, it all hinges on the Postal Service. Now, Tony, I don't know about you, but if you want, um, let's, let's, say, um, let's say that you wanted to send something important through the mail. I bet you wouldn't send it using the Postal Service. You'd send it using a private delivery service. The You're Social correct. Security system has not mailed out a Social Security check to anyone since 2013 because they didn't trust the Postal Service's delivery standards. Well, and I've I've seen firsthand what's happened in political elections where um, you, you've got you know in the the bulk rate for conservative candidates they've set on the docks until after the election, um, and so I've seen those things have have occurred. I mean, I know that those things have occurred. So it's well, it's even worse than that, Tony. CBS News and NBC did experiments recently, and they mailed out. In each case, a hundred letters that were shaped like absentee ballots, same size, same weight. They put first-class postage on them, and they mailed them in regionally. CBS, for example, sent in a hundred letters from um, the Philadelphia area to a Philadelphia post office box they had rented. Well, after a week, and this is all on, on camera, you can go to newsbusters.org, Brent Lozell's group, and find this. 
CBS News went to the post office, looked in the mailbox. There was nothing in the mailbox, nothing. So they go to the postal clerk. Oh, we don't have anything for you. Go to another one. We don't have anything for you. Go to another one. And finally, the postal clerk says, well, I'll bring in my supervisor. Supervisor comes out. This is on tape. Supervisor looks at the camera and says, oh, I guess this is a journalist. Maybe I should pay attention to this. He says, I'll go look for you. So he's gone for five minutes, and then you hear in the background from the bowels of the post office, oh, that's where they are. And then he comes out, and he has 41 ballots out of 100 after a week. Wow. And so at least that's something. So they go back, and finally, after three weeks, 97 of 100 letters arrived. Well, here's the problem. First of all, many of them arrived way late. And secondly, when they did arrive, three of them weren't there. So imagine all the races in 2016, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, Michigan, New Hampshire, all of the races, not to mention Senate races, that were decided by 3% or less. So these ballots could be coming in late, and then the question is, do we count them or not count them? And some of them may disappear forever, and people will be disenfranchised because the Postal Service can't be trusted to do a good job. And, and they're not geared up for this. If we had this massive push, and so what you know, what, what we've been recommending to to voters is not to scare them away from doing absentee voting if they need to do that. They're afraid to go to the polls or they're in a you know compromised health situation. You know, do that. But if you can even drop your ballot off in some states, you can actually drop that absentee ballot off at a state agency. Do that. If you have to use the mail, use it as a last resort. Vote early. Many states have uh, early voting for a couple weeks or more sometimes, uh, depending on the state. Vote that way if you want to avoid the crowds. But by all means, vote. Uh, But try to maintain the custody over that vote and and not, uh, you know, as few as the the least amount of hands touching that ballot, the better. I couldn't agree more. And in addition, uh, because a lot of states have expanded mail-in voting, Tony, people are going to find that their local precinct may have been consolidated with other precincts. It may be much further away, several miles away than what you're used to. And that creates confusion. And you may not, you know, some elderly people can't drive themselves, so they might have to get a ride. So the bottom line is try to keep custody of your ballot because you don't want to have it into a situation where it can be misused, mishandled, or even purposefully lost by someone. When you look at what is uh, being attempted right now, and Nancy Pelosi has made this effort at the federal level, we have some states doing this where they're trying to get rid of voter ID laws, uh, void state laws, banning uh, vote harvesting. I mean, what are some of the other things they're trying to do and why? Well, it's It's kind of depressing because um, absentee ballots have a long tradition since the Civil War in America. But we have certain safeguards, and the safeguards minimize the potential for fraud and intimidation. Give you two examples. Um, Some states used to require a wit or still require a witness to sign your absentee ballot with you. A lot of Democratic lawsuits are seeking to avoid that, and that eliminates a lot of coercive problems. People, you know, showing up as your spouse, as your employer, as your union, and saying vote a certain way. If you have a witness there, that reduces the chance of intimidation and coercion. Secondly, there's the issue of ballot harvesting. Most states prohibit someone from handling your ballot and delivering it if they're not a relative. But California, New Jersey, Nevada, other states change that so now people can handle hundreds of ballots which means they can go door to door collect your ballot say they will deliver it and maybe they'll convince you to vote a certain way on your doorstep or maybe they'll slip you a 20 dollars bill and uh, they'll deliver the ballots and maybe if they went down through a street there were every every household they think voted against their candidate maybe they'll steam open the ballot and uh, they'll see how you voted and if you didn't vote the way they want they'll throw it away and otherwise they'll refill the ballot I mean, there are all kinds of abuses here if you allow ballot harvesting, and it, it, it can completely skew an election. It cost Republicans probably six congressional seats in California last, right. in 2018 alone. Yeah. So, John Fund, when you look at what may happen on election night, where 
there'll be lawsuits filed, maybe challenging some of these laws uh, to try to drag out this election. But there's also, and we have history of this in Minnesota, where there are uh, absentee ballots maybe cast by Republicans or conservatives that are challenged by Democrats, maybe thrown out. The best way to keep your your vote from being discredited is to vote in person or to to vote early. Is that correct? Yes. And the best way to limit voter fraud is consider becoming an election poll worker or helping join in a voter integrity team uh, that is available. You can contact uh, the Republican National Lawyers Association in Washington would be one place to go. But in addition, to raise a ruckus with your friends and on Facebook and other places, telling prosecutors and your elected officials, we care about integrity in elections. You know, you should you should be on the watch out. You know, Trump has 97 U.S. attorneys around the country. They work for him. They also work for the American people. Uh, there's an there's a attorney in each of those U.S. attorney offices responsible for election integrity. They should be encouraged to be very active and to send out press releases saying we're going to be watching. Because, Tony, here's the good news. Uh, voter fraud is a lot like shoplifting. If you do three things in a retail store, just put up a camera, don't even watch it, have a security guard, you can tap asleep, and put up a sign that says we prosecute shoplifters even if you don't do any. If you just do those three things, you cut shoplifting 35 to 40 percent. The reason is there are a lot of people who will do something if there's zero risk, but they won't do it even if there's just a little risk of being caught. And if we can raise the profile of the issue and say what we have to worry about is not voter suppression, it's voter fraud, we can make sure that some people who would commit voter fraud don't do it in November. All right, John Fund, uh, we're out of time, but how can folks pre-order? Can they pre-order your book, Stealing Elections, How Voter Fraud Threatens Our Democracy? Well, it'll be available on Amazon.com, and uh, what I'm going to do is also send you a link because it's being uh, co-published with the Heritage Foundation and my co-author, Hanson Spakowski, there. And maybe you can uh, put that on your website or even mention it on your show uh, as soon as we get a link. We definitely will, and uh, we'll get you to come back on because I know we're going to be talking a lot about this between now and November the 3rd. John Fun, thanks so much for joining us. A real pleasure, Tony. Keep up your great work. All right, thanks so much. John Fun, to find out more, go to the website, TonyPerkins.com. He's been tracking these things on elections for a long time. I know I first talked with him probably 20, over 20 years ago uh, as he was tracking election fraud in Louisiana. But make sure you vote, okay? Take the challenge, pray, vote, stand. Remember, if you can, vote in person. You can vote early. That's not a problem. Uh, if you have to vote absentee, you know, do that. Whatever you got to do, vote. Vote. All right, until next time, I leave you with the encouraging words of the Apostle Paul found in Ephesians 6, where he says when you've done everything you can do, when you have prayed, when you've prepared, and when you've taken your stand. By all means, keep standing. Washington Watch with Tony Perkins is brought to you by Family Research Council and is entirely listener supported. Portions of the show discussing candidates are brought to you by Family Research Council Action. For more information on anything you've heard today or to find out how you can partner with us in our ongoing efforts to promote faith, family, and freedom, visit TonyPerkins.com. Also, to leave a comment about Washington Watch, call our watch line at 1-866-372-7234. That's 1-866-372-7234. 